So last night, I had a conversation with Karsten, Colston, Karsten, who was the teenage, the young man I was talking to last night, Karsten, Karsten, all right, Karsten, so I said, Karsten, you know, you spend a lot of time at camp, what things do I have to do uh, to really enjoy myself, he gave me a couple ideas, um, you know, definitely need to do like the zip line, and then he gets this spark in his eye, and he says, and shucking corn. You definitely need to shuck corn. And it was kind of like a Tom Sawyer moment. You know, whitewashing a fence is the best. Um, thank you to those who shucked the corn today and enjoyed that. This afternoon, I um, got to go out and do some jet skiing. And uh, my hands are still kind of stuck in this position. It was a little bit intense on the choppy waters. And then um, I went headfirst down the slip and slide twice. And... Um, I kind of think I might have broken a couple ribs, but let's be honest, I haven't felt my ribs in a long, long time. <laughs> so I uh, had a full day, enjoyed myself, and I have really looked forward to getting here tonight. And uh, the message tonight is really the one that, that we've been leaning toward uh, for the entire week. Really the heart of the Psalms and the heart of the Scripture is the Gospel. And uh, we've talked about Gospel principles, but tonight... Uh, really going to focus on that from Psalm 32 and 51. Why don't you turn to Psalm 32 with me, please? I do want to mention as well, uh, you know that I am here as a camp speaker, but also my uh, calling now is to be kind of a missions catalyst to encourage people to uh, pray more, give more, think more about missions, and, and even being willing to go. And I just want to say this as we have, uh, tomorrow's the last full day of camp. I would love to have conversations with you about how God might use you in missions. And uh, maybe it's a short-term trip, or maybe you kind of have a sense that uh, the Lord uses average people like us, and, and maybe He could use me. And, um, and I'm open to whatever He wants me to do. I think sometimes people have a sense that maybe the Lord is pressing them, but they don't know what to do next. And um, I would love to have conversations. I told you on Sunday, I'm praying that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers into his fields from family camp three. Uh, I'm praying an imprecatory prayer against you. God, send these people to the mission field. And uh, truly, I believe that. And, and it might be, might be teenagers. I heard a missionary testimony last week and, and asked you know, I just asked, what was it that the Lord used to, to really propel you toward missions? And one of them said, I was at a week of summer camp and God worked in my life and just, he, he called me and I surrendered and said yes. And now I'm on the mission field. Uh, somebody else actually was burdened about ministry when a missionary visited their church and he was seven years old. And now 60 years later, he's recalling how God did that. At a seven-year-old, he said like, that's what I want to do with my life. Then there are some that, you know, you might be in the middle of a really productive career, but the Lord could use you to do uh, even more for gospel advance in hard places. I would love to pray with you and talk to you about maybe some next steps. It might be a mission trip, or it might just be a conversation to get some counsel uh, on what God is doing in the world and how he could use you. So please seek me out. And, um, and I'm praying that the Lord will, will do a work that ripples from here for decades to come, and only he can do that. It's beyond my pay grade, but I'm praying that he will. So uh, let's talk about that as we can. Tonight's message is on repentance. We're going to two penitential psalms, very familiar psalms to most of us. Honestly, my personal testimony as a young Christian, as a teenager, uh, these pages of my Bible were worn out. You know, they had my, my, the oil of my fingers up in the corner because I was there so often because there was sin that I hated but still craved, still succumbed to. I would feel like Paul in Romans 7, the stuff I want to do, I don't do. The stuff I don't want to do, I do. And, and who's going to deliver me? I was so frustrated. And Psalms 32 and 51 were a lifeline for me. Uh, they, they kept me from giving up. They were a place I would go and, and just read again and find out that there's a man after God's own heart 
the psalmist of Israel, King David, and the high point in Israel's history in many ways, a man after God's own heart had struggles with his own temptation, with his own sin, and, and with drastic failure, terrible failures. Adultery, which he tried to cover up by murder, and, and dishonesty. And in some ways, you could argue that David's sins were more grievous than King Saul's sins, but Saul is rejected and David is accepted because a man after God's own heart isn't a perfect man. A man after God's own heart is a repenting man. What God is desiring is a broken and contrite heart. I've loved getting to know you this week. I have so much admiration for what God is doing in this camp and through your churches and through faith and, and through you as families. But let me tell you tonight, we are not gathered at IRBC as the good people. I'm not going to preach a message about how bad the world is and how good we are. We're gathered as sinners. You know, Paul would say that there's all kinds of sin happening in the world, but Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And what's the next line? Of whom I am the chief. I never know whether to say Paul was the best sinner or the worst sinner, but it's the same thing. He had actually just discussed a sin list in 1 Timothy 1 that included things like kidnapping and immorality and homosexuality. And then he says, but I'm still the biggest sinner I know. All right, we need a dose of that. We're, we're so outraged by other people's sins and fairly comfortable with our, you know, kind of pet projects, things we need to work on. And actually, we're, we're, sin, we're sinful people. The only reason we're here instead of in a gutter is by the grace of God. And when we approach God, we never come to Him in prayer and say, well, Lord, I've been pretty obedient today, so let's get started. We always come on our worst day and our best day. We come to God and we say, I come to you in spite of me because of your Son and my Savior, Jesus. This is free, but I urge people to, to start their prayers in Jesus' name. Don't, don't just wait for a sign-off in Jesus' name, amen. I start my prayers in Jesus' name and I say, Lord, I'm coming to you not because I am righteous. I'm not. I'm not claiming my own merit. I have none. I come to you in Jesus' name. I claim his righteousness, his blood, his privileges. Thank you for hearing me. And then I move into my prayer. And that's not only when I've had a really bad day. It's the best day I have. I, I still come to God in Jesus' name. We're sinners. What do we do about that? What do we do when we keep failing? When we get so frustrated with ourselves, why do I keep losing my temper with my kids? You know, why, why am I so quick to criticize? Why do I give in to lust? Or why am I so envious? Why am I actually dishonest? What's wrong with me? We run to Psalm 32. We run to Psalm 51 and we find hope in the Psalms of repentance. Martin Luther said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, Matthew 4, 17, he willed, he intended the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Martin Luther says the entire Christian life is one of repentance. That was actually the first of his famous 95 theses that started the, the Protestant Reformation. Our entire life is repented. So you don't think of it like, I used to be a sinner, and then I repented and lived happily ever after. There's a sense in which I repented and believed, and now 20 years later, by God's grace, I'm still believing, I'm still repenting. You know, the whole idea of repentance and belief, the Bible says both of them are necessary for our salvation. And we're very quick to say, you know, what's required for salvation? Faith. Yes, but, but true faith is repenting faith, and true repentance is believing repentance, and together they form what we call conversion. I remember I was golfing with a man badly, but I was golfing with a man. He was preaching in a camp like this, and I told him I was giving the gospel to somebody, and I was urging the man to repent and be saved. And this preacher, he's old enough to be my dad, he's a respected man, 
And this preacher said to me, when, when I said that the man needed to repent and be saved, the preacher said, Chris, that's a false gospel. And I said, uh, I had nothing. But he said, you know, the Bible doesn't call sinners to repent. It only says that to Jews, you know, who rejected Christ during his life. And that's a false gospel, actually. You know, I, I should have taken him to Acts, uh, what is it, Acts 17 at Mars Hill, where Paul is preaching in Greece to Gentiles. And he says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. The book of Acts says, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Isaiah 55, 7 says, let the wicked forsake his way and turn to the Lord. Do you see that? He's walking toward his way, his sin. He turns from his sin to the Lord. It's impossible to turn to the Lord without turning from your sin. So you're going your way. You turn from your sin to the Lord and he will have mercy and abundantly pardon. First Thessalonians 1.9 says, you turned to God from idols. Turn to God, that's faith. Turn from idols, that's repentance. If there is no repentance, we're not, we're not saved. I'm a guest speaker, so I can say things and then leave and you know, not have to clean up the mess. But especially those of you with young children, when you give them the gospel, I would urge you to try to use Bible language where the Bible says Jesus died for your sins, he was buried, he rose again. Jesus calls you to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. You say, it's a lot easier to say, ask Jesus into your heart. I know it's easier, but it's actually not a biblical phrase. Okay, I'm not telling you you've ruined your kids if you explain it that way. There are millions of people who have been saved by asking Jesus into their heart because what saves us is faith, not the prayer, not the words. But we should be pretty particular to say the Bible commands us to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. And honey, I'm praying for you to do that with my kids. And I am not even starting this sermon. I'm just riffing. With my kids, I would give them the gospel. And then we would take some time before we baptize them because I don't want to give them a false assurance too early. So my youngest especially, uh, the, the, the first three had been born again. They were worried about their sister. You know, they would evangelize her and, you know, Gracie, you need to know Jesus. You're going to go to hell. And they wanted me to baptize her in the tub. And, and you know, I would tell her, I was like, honey, you're a sinner just like me. And we need Jesus. Gracie, you need to be saved from your sin. And only Jesus can do that. And she would say, dad, I trusted Jesus. I would say, honey, I'm so glad you need Jesus. I wouldn't say, check, let's write it in your Bible, never doubt it again. I'd say, I'd say I'm glad to hear that. Always remember, honey, you need Jesus. And I, I didn't want to give her relief too soon. Finally, there was a point where she says, Dad, I know I'm a sinner. I know my only hope is Jesus. I have asked him to be my savior. Dad, I'm a Christian. And, and finally, you know, I'm starting to see some fruit and, and we rejoiced. But because you're anxious for your child to be saved, don't at, at three or four, even five, just be careful. I'm not saying they can't be saved at a young age, but make sure that you're giving the gospel with great clarity. You say, I'm not sure they can understand Jesus dying in their place. Well, if they can't understand that, they're not quite ready to be saved. Okay, so, so don't, you know, don't give them a gospel vaccination because you prayed with them early to make you feel better. And now they think they're saved and you, you tell them they're saved and you write the date in their Bible and they might not have actually grasped the gospel yet. Just be careful. All right, you're praying for them to be saved, but you give them the gospel. That Christ died in our place and our only hope is him. We need to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Repentance is part of the gospel. That's all I'm saying. Repentance is part of the gospel response. And we do it throughout our entire lives. Psalm 32 and 51, we're going to read together in a moment. But again, before we do, if we read it well, the sermon will be easy. So let's read looking for some things. These two Psalms, along with Psalm 6, 38, 102, 130, and 143, are called the penitential Psalms. Penitential sounds like a prison. 
penitentiary. But what we mean is they are the psalms of repentance. Now, one of the big errors of the Catholic Church is when they translated uh, the word from Hebrew and Greek into Latin, there was no word for repentance, so they translated as do penance. Right? Do penance is very different from repent. Do penance is a work, is an act. You know, you do something to, to, to make up for your sins. It might be the, the Hail Marys or the Our Fathers or other things. But the biblical word is to repent. And these Psalms of repentance are actually not just the Old Testament description of salvation, but they're, they're good for now. They are models of Old Testament salvation and sanctification. Even Christians are repenting when we sin because we do. But they're, they're used as models of the same in the New Testament. We'll see that from the book of Romans, if I hurry and get on with it. Okay, but there, there used to be kind of a hyper-dispensationalism. And I think the Schofield notes actually said, in the Old Testament, people were saved by obeying. In the New Testament, we're saved by believing. Actually, we've always been saved by obeying. Okay, and Romans is going to say, even Abraham was saved by believing God. And David was saved by believing God. So they're Old Testament, but they're giving us the gospel that is just clarified for us in the New Testament. And again, they are a lifeline for conscientious Christians who hate their sin, and yet they, they oddly crave it and struggle with it. And uh, that's me. And it's probably you. What do we do when we keep sinning? We repent. We thank God for Jesus, who paid so that we could be washed white in his blood. We've already heard Psalm 51 tonight, but we're going to read it again. Let's stand together and read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Psalm 32, the word of God says, blessed or happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Notice verse 2 uses justification-type language. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. It's not that the man hasn't committed iniquity, but the Lord doesn't count the iniquity against him. What a blessed man that is. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. And here's David's testimony. When I kept silent about his sin, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah, think about that. And then as a result of the conviction, he says, Finally, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. What I love about this is David often, often prays for deliverance from enemies. Here he's kind of praying for deliverance from himself. I'm so sick of my sin. Thank you for delivering me. This is God speaking to his children. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We're going to read something very similar with uh, some variants in Psalm 51. Psalm 51. This is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That's the circumstance, probably of both psalms. David prays, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy. I'm not praying 
that you'll hear me because I've been so good because I've got nothing. Any virtue is going to have to come from you. So according to your love, according to your mercy, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Lord, you want truth in the inner being, but, but we both know it's not there because I'm so sinful. And so he prays. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And if you do, is the idea, then I will teach transgressors your ways and other sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. I think David in particular is saying, God, my sin has, has brought judgment, not just on me, but on all the people I lead. And I'm asking you for your people. Do good to Zion, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. God, I'm so sinful. Have mercy on me and wash me and cleanse me. And by your mercy, then use me for your glory. This this is a lifeline for us. We need this. Lord, speak to us through your word. Help me to communicate it with clarity and accuracy in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And Lord, do work in our hearts by your mercy. Use the scalpel of your word to, to open us, to reveal us to ourselves. And then Lord, bring forgiveness through the blood of Christ. I pray that Christians will be moved to Christ's likeness but Lord, I pray for any in a group this size, for any who don't yet know Jesus as Savior, break their heart. Have your hand heavy upon them. Turn their moisture into the drought of summer. Afflict them with conviction until they find the blessing of peace that comes from Jesus Christ. So do your work tonight. Help us. And we believe we're praying according to your will. So we thank you in advance for what you'll do. And you alone will get glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the sermon is easy after thoughtful reading together. We start with this very quickly. David was painfully aware of his sinfulness. Not always. There was a time when he sinned with Bathsheba. He killed Uriah and he felt like he got away with it. And he was at peace. Shouldn't have been, but he was. Then Nathan the prophet comes, tells him that parable, and David's outraged by something far smaller than what he had done. And then Nathan says, thou art the man. And in his mercy, God just broke his heart. He, he knew that he committed sins. Psalm 51.3, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. That's a, that's a, that's a healthy self uh, identification. You know, we're all about how do, how do you self-identify? I'm a sinner on my best day. My sin is ever before me. If you say, man, I've never felt this kind of guilt over sin. Why? 
Because you're a big sinner. David knew he was a sinner. And he specifically knew it because of Nathan's harsh words. And, and tonight, I guess the Psalms are being the Nathan telling each of us that we are the guilty person. He knew that he committed sins. The whole point is like, God, I'm, I'm so dirty. Help me. Have mercy on me. He knew that he sinned, not in general, but he sinned against God. So Psalm 51.4 says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We might say, well, it seems like he sinned against Bathsheba. He certainly sinned against Uriah. Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. But what he's saying is he's not denying that we can hurt other people, but he says sin's primary, primary offense is against God. The holy, holy, holy God who made us, he gave us commands to obey, and we do the exact opposite. All we like sheep have gone astray. We turn to our own ways. There's none of us seeking after God. We're so sinful. We're sold under sin. We're lost in sin. We're dead in sin without the power of the gospel. He knew his sin was against God. And yes, it had ramifications for other people. But God, I've offended you. Verse 5, he knew that he was born a sinner. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying his mom was an adulteress when he was conceived. He's not confessing his mom's sin. What he's saying is, sin is natural to me. Ever since Adam, because of Adam's sin, sin entered into the world, and every one of us is born a sinner. You know, we'll do a baby dedication in the churches I've pastored. And there are times I have this really adorable little girl that I say, look at this beautiful little rebel against God. You know, this sweet little pagan who needs to be saved because she's born a sinner. We're not just sinners because we sin. We, we sin because we're sinners. We're born that way. David says, this is me. Here, here's the idea. And, and you need to embrace this. Your sin is not out of character. When David says, I was born in sin, I'm so guilty, I've sinned against you, he's not saying like, man, that, is, that was so unlike me. So weird. I'm not usually like that. No, you're totally like that. You know, you're not a good person who occasionally does wrong. You're sold under sin and you need the mercy of God to change that. Reminds me of playing basketball. Um, I used to be an exceptional athlete, like the best, the best in my class when I was eight. I had older brothers and I, I peaked at eight. Some people peak in high school, I peaked at eight, the rest of my life's been downhill. But have you ever been playing basketball with somebody? And you know, they shoot and it's a brick and they shoot and it's a brick, they miss, they miss, they miss. And finally they're like, I can't believe I'm missing all these shots. And I'm like, bro, I can because I've played with you a lot. You always miss all your shots. Or somebody's golfing and they're like, it's so weird I'm slicing. I'm like, dude, it's only weird when you don't slice. You're not good. When you sin, when you curse, when you lose your temper, when you lie, when you complain, when you lust, stop thinking that is out of character for you. Like, man, I'm not that way. You're that way. You were born that way. And you'll die that way apart from the grace of God that comes to you through the blood of Christ. David says, my sin was actually a pretty good representation of who I am and who I've been since conception. My sin runs deep. He was painfully aware of his sinfulness and he was overwhelmed with conviction. He describes this spiritual agony. And many times, you can look at the verses 32.1, 32.10. Look at, look at 51.8 and 12. We're, most of us are still in 51. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken, your pressure has been so hard on me, but let them know joy. Let them rejoice. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I have no joy. Psalm 32 begins by saying, happy is the person who's forgiven. And David says, happy is the person who's forgiven. And I'm saying that because miserable is the person who's not forgiven. 
and I've lived in both states. When I was sinning and hiding my sin from God, I had no joy. It was miserable. Describes loss of fellowship, Psalm 5111. And don't shrug that off when he says, you know, uh, don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take away your spirit. And we say, well, a Christian can't lose the spirit. I agree. But what David's saying is, God, I'm not just, I'm not just worried that I've lost my joy. That would be kind of like self-serving. What I've really lost is you. Not in the sense that, that God had, had cast him away to damnation. A Christian who is born again can't lose his salvation. We're kept by the mercy of God. It's a good thing. But we can lose the enjoyment of his fellowship. You know, our iniquities are, are cutting us off. I, I use the illustration of a wood burner that we had when I lived in Ohio. We had this beautiful wood burner, and I would love to see not only the warmth that, that we'd use to heat our house, but I would love to see just the beauty of the flame. But there were times that maybe the wood wasn't seasoned enough, or I wasn't handling the, the air that came in enough, and eventually the, the windows would kind of get blackened, and they'd get a little bit foggy, and eventually, I mean, they would be totally covered, and you, you couldn't see. They just, it looked like a piece of black metal, and I would have to go in and I might use a razor blade to scrape it, or I might use a cleaner or scrubbing bubbles. If you have a fireplace, try it. It actually is a magic cure. But I would try all these things, and eventually I'd scrape off all of that, that silt, and it would come off, and I could enjoy the, the, the clarity again. There's a sense in which even a Christian can have sin built up, and you're not enjoying the, the, the fellowship of God. You're a child of God, but you're not having unhindered fellowship Charles Tenley would describe it as, there's nothing between my soul and the Savior. I love that. So that his blessed face may be seen. David says, Lord, I don't just miss joy, I miss you. His conviction was so bad, he describes it as physical agony. So in Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4, says not only... Oh, excuse me, I think that's supposed to be Psalm 32. It is, Psalm 32, 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried out as by the heat of summer. He said, God, I was so convicted by sin, I felt sick. I want to throw up. Have, have you ever sinned and your sin makes you sick? I know that other people's sins make you sick. But has your own sin ever made you sick? And there was such grief that it was literally like, like he was physically afflicted. Have you ever experienced that? And here's a question. Have you ever mercifully prayed this for others? You say, man, that doesn't sound very merciful. No, I, I prayed it tonight. Lord, if there's somebody in this room who is rationalizing that they don't need Jesus, they don't need Christianity, they don't believe all this stuff, they think they're okay as they are, God, in your mercy, press on them. Press on their conscience. You know, make them feel what David is describing. And it's actually a mercy. When God makes someone miserable in their sin, it's a mercy because it's pushing them toward repentance. So you have a loved one that you're praying for. You have, you have a wayward child, or you have maybe an unsaved sister, and what you're praying is God convict them. And, and only God can do that. But like when Peter preached on the day of, of Pentecost, he's preaching, you know, the, the sinfulness of these people and the glory of Christ. And I think the King James says, when they heard him, their hearts were pricked. That sounds so gentle. You know, they just beep, little prick. No, no, they were cut to the heart. The word of God is, is like a sharp two-edged sword and it cuts you and allows you to see what you're really like. And then they say, what do we have to do? Tell us how to be saved. It's another thing to deal with your children. If you're twisting their arm to be saved and they're kind of like, ah, oh, I guess, take or leave it, make mom happy. Eh, that, don't pray with them yet. You want to see some evidence that they are really you know, feeling conviction for their sin and, and for their need of Christ. We pray this, God, 
afflict people, convict people, draw people, then eventually that conviction led to confession. Conviction is, is like you put your hand on a stove and it hurts. But the pain is a good thing because if you didn't have the pain, you would just keep getting burned. Conviction is, hey, you need a change. You need to repent. You need to be forgiven. And of course, David was so grateful for forgiveness. We have such a contrast between the agony when he was covering his sin and the joy and the relief when he was forgiven. So again, happy is the man whose sin is covered. Happy is the man to whom the Lord doesn't impute his iniquity. He's still a terrible sinner, but God is not crediting the sin against him. And we know that through justification, the reason he's not crediting the sin against the sinner is that God, through the great exchange, is crediting it against Christ. How happy and relieved we are when we're forgiven. David's terminology, he uses all these words. He says, blot out my sin, wash me, cleanse me, purge me, hide my sin. Again, blot it out, create a clean heart, and on and on. He says the answer is not Old Testament sacrifices. Even in the Old Testament, God wanted his heart to be broken and penitent. He didn't just want a lamb. He said, if that's all you wanted, I'd bring it. But that's too easy. You want a broken, penitent heart. But in the middle of all this, we have to grasp how the gospel works. Turn with me to Psalm 32 quickly. Psalm 32, 1 and 2, I'll read again. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed uh, is the man whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You can keep your finger there, but turn ahead to Romans. In Romans 3, what is it, 3.23 and following, 3.24, you start having all of humanity has been condemned under sin, but then we start to have the gospel. Romans 3.21, the gospel is expressed. And then especially in chapters 4 and 5, we have Paul's beautiful description of justification by faith. Look with me at verses 5 through 8. Romans 4, 5. I remember memorizing this in Awana. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just like David. The gospel wasn't something that was invented after Christ's uh, sacrifice and resurrection. David was saved the, same, saved the same way. Just as David who speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, and he quotes Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's the language of justification. God doesn't count the sin or sin against him. He counts the sin or sin against Christ. So the sinner can be declared righteous. It's how the gospel works. And again, it's unchanged from the Old and New Testament. Let me just talk to you about the gospel for a moment. Even God can't merely excuse sin. Even God can't merely excuse sin. Now, the Psalms use language like blot out, that's kind of like erase, or hide, but that's symbolism. Sin's wage must be paid. The wages of sin is, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Even God can't just erase David's sin or yours or mine. Okay, so the, the scripture will use language like, God has cast our sin into the deepest sea. And what it means is it's gone forever or he separates it uh, from us as far as the east or from the west. And what it means is he's not holding it against you. But how does he do that? That sin has to be paid for. Even God can't just ignore it. Zechariah 3 has a description of the high priest Joshua in filthy robes. It actually was a message I heard in college on Zechariah 3 that, that led to the song, His Robes for Mine. Joshua the high priest is covered in filth. In filth. Like, like excrement. Like dried blood, vomit. He, he's so gross. He's the high priest representing the whole nation of Israel. He's being accused by Satan. 
And then a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ appears as his defender. And he says, stop, take those garments off of him and clothe him in clean garments and, and put, you know, put a turban on his head. And you have this guilty man, his filth is taken away, he's clothed in clean garments. It's an early picture of, picture of, of justification, of our salvation we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah 61.10 builds on that. But the New Testament tells the rest of the story. Let me ask you a question. You have this, this high priest that's covered with these filthy robes. They are taken off of him, and he's clothed in clean garments. What happened to the filthy robes? What did God discard them? Wash them? Cast him into hell. God put those filthy garments on his son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him, Jesus, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be made sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So I am clothed in the obedience and righteousness of Christ because Christ was clothed in my filth. So if God is going to forgive me and blot out my transgressions and have mercy and wash me white, it's not with a wave of his wand. I can only be forgiven because Jesus Christ died in my place. It's astounding. From humanity, he takes sinfulness. The holy God in whom there is no darkness at all takes the sins of the world what could be worse than that? A holy God taking the sins of the world on himself. What could be worse than that? One thing. Took the wrath of his father. Jesus is in the crossfire. From us, he gets sin. From the father, he gets wrath. He absorbs it all. So when Judas sells him, the disciples forsake him, Peter denies him. Jesus doesn't say a word. But when he's on the cross, clothed in our sin, under the wrath and judgment of God, he finally cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is that Jesus was treated like a sinner so that sinners can be treated like a son. In Jesus' ministry, God would look at him and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But at the cross, Jesus said, or God said to Jesus, this is a curse. And he turned away from his son. God, in some mysterious way, estranged from God. And their beautiful fellowship broken. And because of that, God looks at a David... And he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In spite of David, because of Jesus, because there's been this great exchange. So God accepts me in spite of me because of his son. My sin is not merely washed away or wiped away. There must be satisfaction. There must be absorption of the wrath of God. Jesus Christ is our propitiation. So 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, I'm writing to you so that you don't sin. That's plan A, don't sin. Okay, everybody, that's your marching orders. Leave camp, go home, don't sin. Let's pray. Okay, but you, you know you're going to sin. And God knows you're going to sin. So he says, but if any man does sin, when any man does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. So when you sin, there's an answer for that. It's Jesus. It's the cross. So, you know, we think of Jesus saying to the, the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. He didn't condemn her or us because he would be condemned in her place, in my place. He Treat it as though he were I, and I treat it as though I were he. So when you sin, you don't go by feelings. You don't just pray harder. I heard a man preaching at a camp one time, 
And he said, you know, if you confess your sin and still feel guilty, pray harder. It's not, it's not the intensity of your prayer that gets forgiveness. It's Christ. If you plead the blood of Christ and don't feel forgiven, then you just need to believe what God has said and, and not live by your glands and how you feel. Christ did it all. Christ is the answer. He's your advocate. He's your propitiation. For the sake of time, I'll stop there. I will just say quickly, David was ambitious for God's glory. And in both Psalms, he has these statements where he is saying, Lord, if you will forgive me, I don't deserve it, but if you'll forgive me, I'm going to shout your praises. I'm going to teach other sinners how to get to you. So it's not only that God will forgive you through Christ, but he'll use you again. You're not useless. You're not on the shelf. So it motivates your obedience. It motivates your service. It motivates missions. You know, we've been forgiven much and we're so grateful we got to share the news with somebody else. Spurgeon in his book, Lectures to My Students, has a line, I know what he's saying, but he says, he says, the thrice holy God would never use a dirty tool. And he's urging pastors to be godly because God wouldn't use a dirty tool. I know what he's saying. But there is a very real sense in which God has nothing at his disposal except dirty tools. If God uses you, it's in spite of you. It's all because of him. He uses knuckleheads like us. You know, I often will pray, you know, Lord, you used Jonah, and he was a jerk. So please use me. And Lord, even more than that, you use Balaam's donkey. So I have a chance. Please use me. But we talk about David, a man after God's own heart. We talk about the Apostle Paul, a murderer, martyring Christians, and God used him. God is so gracious. He'll use you. Sometimes people confuse conviction with just guilt. And the devil is the accuser of the brethren. The devil will wipe you out, reminding you of your sin. The devil is telling you, you're such a sinner, you should give up. Just quit. Just stop the charade. Just quit. Leave your family. Just give up. Or end your life. Give up. You're a waste of oxygen anyway. That's the devil. The difference is the Spirit of God, when He convicts us, it's never pushing you away. It's never shaming you. It's saying, you're a sinner. You're guilty. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Psalm 86.10 in the King James speaks about God. It says that God is good and ready to forgive. I love that. He's ready to forgive. The idea is like He's on the edge of His seat, like the father in the, in the story of the prodigal son. If you'll repent, just say it. Just say the word, and I'm going to run to you. He's so eager to forgive you. He's not pushing you away. If you feel condemned and useless, that's not God. That's the devil afflicting you. God is saying, come to me. I won't cast you away. I love you. I bled for you. I'll forgive you. Thank God for 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, what? Cleanses us from all sin. Christians, we have so much to rejoice in. So much. You know, be, be reminded of it. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I've mentioned, I love this phrase, mine, mine was the transgression, but thine, the deadly pain, amazing. Knew him, my sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Where we sing with the Gettys, for on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Praise God. I love before the throne of God above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, I don't even argue with him because he's right. 
Upward I look and see Him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. That's the gospel. It's remarkable. Close with this. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Christians can say, Jesus, thank you. Those of you who are still holding out, what are you waiting for? You have family that's been pleading with God to save you. They've been praying for you all week. They're so glad you're here. And you're still holding out, and you're so proud. You think, you know, I'm, I'm smarter than that. I have the answers. No, you're a fool. And you are this close to perishing forever. And you think you're going to argue your way around it. You're like a man who is lying on the ground in cardiac arrest. And, and there's people there that can save him, but he's refusing. Or he's asking stupid questions. Where'd you go to med school? Okay, shut up and be saved. Stop your doubt. It's, it's not intellectualism. It's foolish pride. Jesus loves you in spite of the mess you are. He did everything necessary to save you. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I repent. I'm sorry. Save me. He will save you. What are you waiting for? God, in your mercy, save more sinners even tonight. There is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Might there be joy in heaven tonight? Bring this kind of pressure and conviction and make people aware of their guilt and their need. And then in your mercy, grant them the gift of repentance. Help them believe. Bring them to salvation through Christ. And might your people have a greater, deeper appreciation for what you've done to save us. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.